everybody, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 5, Episode 10, Abandon All Hope. What an uplifting title. Written by Ben Edlund and directed by Phil Segretia. What a downer of an episode, right? After a little run of episodes that were a bit more fun... And the fact that this aired as the mid-season finale and left viewers hanging on this note for two whole months kind of makes me glad we don't have to wait through hiatuses for this podcast. On the upside, this episode is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of deep meta-mining. It's just straight-up plot. Messed-up, angst-ridden plot, but lots of events progress the story on multiple fronts. Edlin goes back and snatches up bits of relevant things from the past and crams them in here, too, in ways that resonate forward through canon for years. So, thanks, Ben Edlund. There's reasons I enjoy his writing. We also get to meet Crowley, finally. Cass gets to confront Lucifer. Lucifer gets to confront Sam. And we learn that all-powerful cosmic-level weapons don't work if the plot doesn't want them to. Thanks for that, Chuck. And after having the notion of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse dropped on us in the second episode of this season, we also finally get teased with the concept of death, Big Daddy Reaper, even if we don't get to meet him for another 10 episodes or so. Reminder also that they only find Crowley and set off on this horrific adventure because of the almost casual name drop by Becky, super fangirl who only knew that detail because it was in Chuck's story. Chuck is always the one pushing his narrative forward. And we see that happening in this episode through Lucifer's manipulative attempts to win over both Cass and Sam. I think my personal area of interest in this episode centers around Cass and his wobbly powers. We're seeing him cut off from heaven as he seems to be gradually falling into something resembling the completely broken version Dean saw in 5.4. He even has his first experiments with alcohol here, but mostly I'm here for the continuing mutability of what angels can and cannot do, and the fact that Heaven still seems to retain some control over Cass's power levels, and what that probably unintentionally implied about all angels throughout canon. And honestly, Why would they have abandoned the cult here? Even if it failed to kill the devil, it was still one of the most powerful and useful and versatile weapons they had. And they just forgot it in the woods. Yeah, we'll get to that during the episode, though. We've got a late draft for this one, Goldenrod Revisions, which is pretty far down the line of revision colors. We've also got three promo clips, two from the CW and one from Space TV. And I find it fascinating how Space TV promoted the show versus how the CW did. CW's promos are all the brothers all the time, while Space carries the narrative of the episode through Cass. From the CW promo, you'd barely even know Cass was in the episode at all. So let's just say I find these differences fascinating and recommend just viewing takes less than two minutes total to view all three promos. Just compare how the CW chose to promote this episode because all of it was just marketing choices. 
We have a few other bits and bobs and another locations map, which reminded me that they filmed all the scenes that were supposedly taking place in Carthage on the Watchmen backlot set in Vancouver. And that explosion at the end of the episode was accidentally way larger than they intended it to be and did about $20,000 of damage to the set that Supernatural had to pay to repair. (laughs) So, oops, just on a behind-the-scenes note there. And on that explosive note, let's start with the then segment. We begin the then segment back in 5-1, when demon-possessed Bobby punched Dean through a rail in their motel room, and then Meg turned up. We get a quick reminder that Ellen has been hunting with Joe since early season four. We get a reminder from Ben Edlin's previous episode, 5-4 The End, that Cass has been hunting for the cult and believes that it is their best weapon to attempt to kill the devil with. So even the angels don't know about that five exceptions to the cult being a kill-everything gun. We then get a reminder of the very end of last week's episode with Becky telling Sam about what really happened to the cult after Bella stole it from them. That she didn't really give it to Lilith, she gave it to Lilith's right-hand man, a demon named Crowley. And then without further ado, we come right to now. A high shot over a tangled mess of interstates, where in the seedy underbelly beneath these ramps... A limousine pulls to a stop, and a very well-dressed man gets out, and immediately steps into a mud puddle, and his day doesn't get any better from there. The man buries a box to summon a crossroads demon, and is surprised when Crowley shows up. He'd been negotiating with a very young and attractive demon, but Crowley says, nope, your deal is too high level. I came to handle it myself. The man tries to waffle on the deal. He's like, oh, I thought this had to be sealed with a kiss. He doesn't want to kiss a man. Crowley's like, well, you can either cling to six decades of homophobia and your bank's going to be ruined or we can do this deal. Rather than just a quick peck on the lips, Crowley just holds the kiss while the guy is like all but struggling to get away. He wants this deal, but he does not want this kiss. As he's being grossed out by it, and, you know, good for Crowley for pushing that, the camera zooms way into the distance, and we see somebody hiding behind a pylon. It's Cass, spying on this whole deal, on the phone, to Dean. He found Crowley. We then cut to the title card, and then cut immediately back to the homophobic jerk getting his deal done by Crowley still cringing away from this kiss like it's the worst thing he's ever had to endure and I'm thinking oh buddy you just wait until your deal comes due and you end up in hell I think you're gonna like that even less Cass tells Dean that the demon Crowley is making a deal even as we speak it's going down and it sounds like Cass heard Dean using that turn of phrase And it's still awkward in his mouth, but he's trying. And the way he said it, Dean's eyebrows just shoot up. Dean's like going down. All right, Huggy Bear. Like Cass was trying to imitate Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch, which for the youngins in the audience, Huggy Bear was a pimp slash informant for Starsky and Hutch doing the snitching, 
like Cass is doing for them right now. So that's the origin of that reference. It's not a term of endearment. Well, I mean, for Dean, it it kind of is a term of endearment that he's given Cass that sort of pop culture reference. But it's no more endearing to him than calling Cass Columbo for wearing the coat or calling him the Hamburglar when he's on his burger binge. It's that level of endearing. <laughs> not it, It's not like him calling him sweetheart or love or something. It's... Huggy Bear is just the name of this character from Starsky and Hutch. So clearing that one up for anyone who squeals with delight that it's a Destiel moment. It's cute, but it's not that. When Crowley walks away from his deal, it's a great shot. The camera just passes behind a pole and Crowley is gone by the time the camera reaches the other side. And then it does the same thing for Cass as Cass is following Crowley to wherever he's zapped off to. When Cass arrives at the destination, he calls Dean back because he knows where Crowley's hiding, but it's all layered with Enochian warding magic that we can't see at first. But then when we see it from Cass's perspective, all that weird layering is on the building that we previously saw in 415 Death Takes a Holiday. Angel proofing. So they have to devise another way to get inside Crowley's compound. Crowley's chilling inside the mansion, having a drink, watching old videos of Hitler while listening to Everybody Plays the Fool. What a strange uh, way to relax there, Crowley. Meanwhile, outside the gate, Joe walks up to the intercom and she's all dressed up fancy, asking for help because her car broke down. Two men come strolling down the driveway dressed in suits as the massive gates swing open Joe tries to walk forward cautiously. She's like, oh, I I just need to make a call. This guy is like really sleazy, like, oh, we're the only help you're ever going to need. Come on in. And she's like, yeah, I think I'm going to go wait by my car. They try to detain her by force and their eyes flash black because, of course, they're demons. That's when Sam and Dean pop out. They've got an angel blade. They've got the demon killing knife and... Both of those demons are dead now, but they're through the gate inside the compound. They cut all the power. Crowley's TV goes dark. Music stops. He knows something's up, but I think he's been expecting them because he smiles. He's confronted by Sam and Dean in the hallway. He stops short of a rug that's rumpled at the edges, lifts it up, and finds a devil's trap painted on the underside of it. As Sam and Dean are disappointed that he has not walked into it, Crowley is too smart for that shit, two other demons come back and snag Sam and Dean. Crowley then pulls out the colt while these demons are restraining Sam and Dean, and they think, oh shit, he's going to shoot us with the gun we came to find. Crowley's like, this is what it's all about, right? This is what you're here for? And instead of shooting Sam and Dean, Crowley shoots the two demons restraining them which seems an unusual move for a demon to murder his own henchmen. And it confuses the hell out of Sam and Dean. Crowley wants to talk to them privately. Crowley fesses up that the only reason Sam and Dean even knew the gun still existed, all the rumors that Cass had been hearing about the cult still being out there somewhere, Crowley put those out himself. He wanted them to seek him out to come claim the gun. Crowley has his own agenda. He is not a moron. 
Crowley wants them to take the colt, find Lucifer, and empty the gun into his face. He wants Lucifer dead. That confuses Sam and Dean again. Why would he want the devil dead? Crowley's the only one smart enough to figure it out that Lucifer is not a demon. He's an angel, famous for his hatred of humanity, which extends to demons who he only cares about as long as they're useful to him. Crowley doesn't want this apocalypse to happen. He's like, if Lucifer does manage to wipe out humanity, he's going to wipe out demons next. It's not like they're going to have some sort of demonic paradise, which is what Meg is absolutely convinced will happen. She thinks that the demons will all be rewarded by their god and savior, Lucifer, which parallels very nicely to Chuck and his attitudes towards all of creation. He's the god of creation, just the way the demons believe that Lucifer is their god of creation. Lucifer doesn't give two shits about the demons, except in how they're useful to him. Just like Chuck doesn't give two shits about humanity, except in how they're useful to him and entertainment for him. But in the overall big picture, it only makes sense that as above, so below in every level of the story. Crowley's like, I just want us to go back to how we were. Everybody's staying in their own lane and, you know, I'm in sales, damn it. He's the king of the crossroads. He just wants to keep making his deals and having his sumptuous lifestyle that he's grown accustomed to here. Sam very reluctantly takes the colt from Crowley and then asks if Crowley knows where Lucifer is. Crowley says little birdie told him he's in Carthage, Missouri which is a town that we have been to in a previous episode. 4-4, Metamorphosis. That's where the Rougarou lived. So everyone in that town got wiped out. So even if his wife had survived and actually stayed in that town, even if she didn't have an abortion and did carry the baby Rougarou to term, I have to assume that Lucifer wiped them out as part of the town at this point. So I guess Sam and Dean don't have to worry about the unknown Rougarou maturing in 30 years or whatever. So, hey, cleaning up the show's own messes, maybe, even though it's really depressing that a whole town gets wiped off the map. Mm, Whatever. Sam and Dean kind of just look at each other awkwardly here like, well, that was way easier than we were expecting. We weren't expecting to just have this demon hand us the gun and encourage us to go do it and point us in the right direction even. Sam takes the gun and fires it like inches from Crowley's face. And he just smiles at them like, oh, right. You probably want some bullets to go with that, right? While he is searching around in his desk for the bullets, Dean asks him, why are you doing this? Aren't you kind of signing your own death warrant? What happens if we go up against the devil and lose? Crowley's like, well, first off, he's going to kill us all anyway, regardless. And second... As soon as they leave, Crowley's going to disappear to take an extended vacation to points nowhere, probably why he wiped out his henchmen so he could have that plausible deniability that he disappeared, you know? And third, he gets very angry and says, how's about you don't miss? He knew they were specifically looking for that gun. If he trusted anybody to have a decent shot of actually succeeding, it's the Winchester's. Because Crowley has never underestimated Sam and Dean. And just to prove it, he tosses them the bullets. And as Dean's fumbling to catch them, Crowley disappears before they can load the gun and shoot him. Smart. 
smartest demon in the whole show. Back at Bobby's, they're all having their last night on Earth celebration, listening to Oya Komova. I can't hear this song anymore without picturing this scene of them all sitting around drinking, including Cass. He drinks five shots in a row at Ellen's prompting and stares like, oh, I think I'm starting to feel something. So alcohol can affect him if he drinks it in a high enough quantity, which will become relevant in about eight more episodes when he downs a ton of it. Drinks a whole liquor store, in fact, just trying to forget. Meanwhile, in the other room, Sam and Dean are talking. Sam's like, it's got to be a trap, right? And Dean is just delighted because Sam is not jumping to trust a demon. He's like, about time. But it's all lighthearted. It's not accusatory. It's not angry. It's like, yeah, we are on the same page here. Dean sets down the research that he'd been working on. And he says, I'm not sure it is a trap, though. There's all sorts of revelations, omens popping up in town. And since Sunday, there's been six missing persons reports filed in this little town. He's pretty sure the devil is actually there. Dean tries to convince Sam not to come. He's like, if I go up against the devil and fail, that's a game piece that gets taken off the table. If you go, we could be handing the devil his vessel. That's not a risk Dean wants to take, especially not with Sam's life. And Sam comes back with the usual argument. We know better. How many times have we gotten screwed because we separated? If we're going to do this, we're going to do it together. Which, yay, go team free will. Dean relents and agrees, even though he says it's a stupid friggin' idea, and then gets distracted when Joe stands up and bends over the table. And Dean's like, yeah, speaking of stupid ideas. Dean corners Joe at the fridge and tells her, you know, dangerous mission tomorrow. It's last chance to eat, drink, and make merry. And Joe's like, are you giving me the last night on Earth speech? And Dean's like, well, what? No, no. He's so awkward. He laughs and he's like, uh, but if I was, would that work? And Joe puts her drink down, leans in real close, puts a hand on the back of Dean's head, closes her eyes and leans real close like she's about to kiss him. And then she pushes him away and it's like, no, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with self-respect. As Dean is awkwardly shot down and left hanging, Bobby calls everybody into his office where he's got a camera set up. He wants to take a group photo. Bobby's like, I'm going to need something to remember your sorry asses by. And Ellen laughs like great optimism there. And Cass is the one who brings everybody back down. Bobby's right. Tomorrow we hunt the devil. This is our last night on earth. Dean looks over at him. Everybody looks at the camera, letting that sink in. Very different from Dean's flirtatious last night on earth speech that he tried to give Joe. This is the real deal. The next day, they pull up in Carthage. There's missing persons posters everywhere and not any human life to be seen. I love this big poster in the background of an American flag. It says, anti-God is anti-American. And isn't that just disturbing as heck? And right next to it is a sign advertising adult videos. So kind of makes you wonder. What's the message here? <laughs> the town is completely deserted, though. There's not even a cell phone signal. Very Croatoan-esque. 
Dean tells Ellen and Joe that he and Sam are going to go check out the police department and for them to stick back and see if they can find anyone. Cass is riding in the back seat with Ellen and Joe, and when Joe gets out, she knocks on Cass's window like, you ever heard of a doorknob? And he's already booped himself to the sidewalk behind her and is like, yes, I have. As Ellen and Joe are converging on the sidewalk, Cass tells them this town's not empty. The camera again goes behind Cass's back. And as it comes off the other side, we can see what Cass does. There's reapers everywhere, all staring up at this one building. Cass excuses himself, saying that he's going to go find out why all of these reapers have gathered. They only apparently gather at times of great catastrophe. To Ellen and Joe, it just looks like Cass is randomly walking down the street, pausing to look at random spots in the air. But when we see it from Cass's perspective, he's examining all of these reapers up close, and his presence isn't doing anything to distract them from their staring mission. Until he sees one reaper staring out a window directly at him, and then turn away. You can see a movie marquee sign that just says Jesus saves on it. And then we see from the perspective of that window, Cass standing down on the street. And the next thing we see is Cass standing up where the camera is. As Cass walks deeper into the building, he stops in the dark. And we hear a voice say, hello, brother. And then a blinding white light just sort of wipes out everything. And we cut back down to Ellen and Joe. They meet back up with Sam and Dean, and they all agree the town is completely empty. Ellen asks if they have seen Cass. Ellen has to tell them about the Reapers and that Cass disappeared. We cut back to Cass, who is now trapped in what looks like the basement of this building in a circle of holy fire. And as he turns around and figures out where he is, he sees Lucifer, who says, I take it you're here with the Winchesters. Cass tries to lie and say, I came alone, and Lucifer admires his loyalty. And we get some great scenes about what it is to be an angel, expressed through extremely mundane humanity. Lucifer is confused that Cass came there in a car. What was that like? And Cass is just like, slow, confining. It's not something that he's really stopped to think about before. It's just how the humans he hangs out with get around, so it's how he's begun to learn to get around, too. Cass notices that Lucifer's vessel doesn't seem to be holding up very well. There's places where his skin is starting to wear away, and he just looks worn out like he can't contain Lucifer. Cass is outraged by this to the point that he steps threateningly toward Lucifer before realizing, oh shit, no, I'm inside the holy fire ring. I can't get to him. I have to stop or I'm going to hurt myself and stops. But he's angry with Lucifer for his casual disregard for his vessel, which tells you something about Cass, knowing that in the way I view the show, Cass is now alone in that body He's got to be carrying the weight of the soul that used to occupy this vessel with him, Jimmy. And I can imagine that Jimmy's loss and Cass being alone now and there has got to be hitting him when he sees that Lucifer's just like, oh yeah, this vessel can't hold me forever, right? And doesn't even care. 
because Cass knows what's next. When Nick can't contain Lucifer anymore, Lucifer's going to want to step up into his actual vessel, Sam Winchester. Cass tells him flat out, you are not taking Sam Winchester. I won't let you. And then Lucifer begins the false parallels between him and Cass. And it's so manipulative and so transparently wrong to anybody who actually knows Cass. Lucifer's like, well, we're the same. Why would you be against me of all the angels? We both rebelled and were cast out. Almost all of heaven wants to see Lucifer dead. And if they succeed, Cass will be their new public enemy number one. Because they've always got to have a target, right? Lucifer's trying to convince Cass that it's in his own best interests to help Lucifer achieve his goals. And no, it really isn't. Even Crowley knows that. All the other demons think, oh, if Lucifer wins, we're going to have paradise on earth. And no, no, Lucifer's not interested in creating your demon paradise on earth. He just believes it will be convenient to have Cass in his pocket, to have Cass as his associate helping him to get what he wants. Cass rejects Lucifer's offer flat out. He's like, I'll die first. And Lucifer's like, I guess you will, and disappears, leaving Cass trapped in the circle of holy fire. Back outside on the street, our four heroes are armed to the teeth and looking for some sign of Lucifer. Dean's upset that they've already lost their angel at less than 20 minutes. Sam suggests that Lucifer probably got him, and Dean's like, yeah, I don't know what else to think. They don't run across Lucifer, though, but Meg. Dean pulls out the colt and points it right at her, and she's like, uh, I didn't come here alone. And that's when all the hellhounds around them start growling. Meg is absolutely delighted by this entire turn of events. Because remember, she's still one of the demons who totally believes that Lucifer is there to become their savior and take them all to demon paradise. Meg tells them that her father wants to see them meaning Lucifer, and invites them to come with her and her hellhounds. Sam's like, yeah, I think we'll take a pass on that, because if she takes them to Lucifer, they're going to be disarmed, and Sam's going to be held down until he agrees to say yes. That's not what Sam wants. Dean's like, since when have you known us to make anything easy? And it looks like he's going to shoot Meg, but instead he turns and shoots one of the hellhounds at her side, And then they all run like hell. As they're running, Dean gets knocked over by one of the hounds and Joe comes to his rescue, firing salt rounds at the hellhound. Just as she gets it away from Dean, another hound attacks her from the side and tears open her side. Dean scoops her up while Ellen and Sam hold off the rest of the hellhounds and they find the nearest building to hide out in happens to be a hardware store. Which is pretty convenient because they have things like chains to lock the door shut and salt to block the exits and various other potential weapons just all over the place. As soon as they get the place secure, they all have to confront just how badly Joe has been hurt. And nobody says it, but if Cass had been there, he maybe could have healed her a little bit, helped, kept her from dying but he's being detained by Lucifer too. And as far as they know, Cass is probably dead or trapped or who knows. 
Dean is working on getting a radio functioning so he can try and communicate with Bobby because their phone lines are all out. And Sam is disgruntled that they are now trapped like rats here instead of having fled the scene. And Dean's like, you heard Meg. Her father's here. This is our one chance. We have to try no matter what. Dean manages to get through in the shortwave radio, but they, of course, have to speak in code because anybody else could be hearing them on the shortwave radio. Dean just tells Bobby they've got problems. Dean has to tell Bobby that Joe's been hurt pretty bad, and Bobby holds it together for both of them, keeps Dean on track. Okay, so now we figure out what we have to do next. When Dean tries to talk about how he's really worried about Joe, she's he doesn't think she's going to make it, and it sounds like he's going to break down and cry about it, Bobby asks Dean what he's got to work with, and Dean pulls himself together like visibly as he's talking to Bobby. Ellen comes over and clarifies how many Reapers she thinks Cass may have seen, and well over a dozen. From what we saw, it looked like well more than that. Bobby is very concerned. Bobby thinks Lucifer is going to unleash death. And Dean's like, well, hasn't death already been tromping all over the place? I mean, I've died several times myself. No, not the act of dying, but death, the big daddy reaper, the horseman. But apparently death has not been free to walk the earth since Noah. And Lucifer has to work a ritual to free him. Which is weird because none of the other horsemen required a ritual. They've just been appearing at Lucifer's demand. But death is different. He's got to chain death to his will. All the other horsemen just were along for the ride like most of the other demons. Death is not the same thing. As Bobby explains why Lucifer has chosen the site he did to work this ritual, it had to be a place of great carnage. And during the Civil War, there was a battle there that the soldiers called the Battle of Hellhole because it was a a massacre. Meg has returned to report in to Lucifer, who's still just staring down Cass inside his little holy fire circle. She reports that she's got the Winchesters pinned down and wants to know what to do with them next. And Lucifer advises her to leave them alone. And she's like, "Are are you sure? Sure that's a good idea? And he's like, oh, yes, everything happens for a reason. That gives Cass a few moments to look around the room and see what he can use to his advantage. And just like in On the Head of a Pin, when leaky pipes were used to foil one of his plots, Cass sees pipes overhead and starts plotting what he's going to do with them. Our boy's real good with the strategy. Lucifer turns his attention back to Cass and is like, well, that gives us some time. Time to change your mind, Cass, so you'll work with me. I don't think that's going to happen. Dean's reporting back to Sam what Bobby told him about where the devil's going to be and when at midnight on this one particular farm. And we have the cult. We can go kill him. Meanwhile, Joe is bleeding out on the floor in the background. But their plan's got a lot of holes in it because they've got to get Joe and Ellen to safety and get past eight or so hellhounds, and get to the farm by midnight. It's a lot to ask. They agree that their best plan is to build Joe a stretcher so they can get her out of there, and she tells them to stop. She knows she's not going to make it, and she'd just slow them down. 
Ellen tries to talk her out of it, but she's like, I can't walk and I can't fight, but I can do something. We've got propane. We've got salt. We can make a bomb. Dean immediately dismisses that idea. Joe's like, do you have another idea? Her plan is to let all the hellhounds in while everybody else escapes onto the roof and makes a break for the next building over while she pushes the button and blows all those hellhounds back to hell because otherwise they're never going to stop coming for any of them, which is totally a valid point there, Joe. Ellen is protesting the entire time. Of course, she doesn't want her daughter to sacrifice herself like this. She wants her to be able to see some hope. And Joe's like, no, that's why we're all here to get a shot at the devil. If I can help give you that, let me do this. Ellen finally relents and tells Sam and Dean to get to work, at which point they start gathering all the iron nails and buckets and propane and salt and Dean even grabs a little doorbell to make the trigger out of. Dean gets everything wired up and then comes over and kneels down beside her and tells her that he'll see her on the other side probably sooner than later. Because Dean expects to die later on tonight trying to kill the devil. Honestly, he didn't expect to get as far as they have. And I hate that for him. But Joe just laughs and says, make it later. Like, Go live a long life, succeed, be happy, have a life, which makes it kind of ironic when she reappears as a ghost in season seven to end his life, being forced to do so by a god. We'll talk about that when we get there. Dean puts the trigger in her hand and holds her hand and looks right at her and then leans forward and kisses her on the forehead, recalling their entire conversation the previous night about their last night on earth. They both were kind of cavalier about it at the time, and I don't think they really understood that it was going to be one of their last nights on Earth. He kisses her on the mouth, and you can sense the regret of everything, of having brought her along, that Dean is going to carry with him for years to come, that it's his fault that she died. Even though he knows rationally, it's not. It's still going to feel like it to him. As Sam and Dean start walking for the exit... Ellen comes down and kneels next to Joe, kind of gives her a weak smile like, yeah, yeah. And Joe's like, no, you've got to go. And Ellen's like, no, somebody's got to let in the hellhounds. And Joe can't. She can't get up and unlock the door. So Ellen is going to stay with her. And Sam and Dean have just realized that Ellen intended to stay and try and talk her out of it. And she's like, nope, you boys get going. As they walk away, Ellen stops them and tells Dean, kick it in the ass, don't miss. And that line, Kim Manners' catchphrase, kick it in the ass, that wasn't scripted. That was suggested by one of the people on set that she try that line just to see how it worked. And they ended up keeping it, which nice little tribute to Kim Manners. But man, it just sort of adds a layer of sad to this. As soon as Sam and Dean are gone, they hear the hellhounds growling at the door again. Ellen gets up, unchains the door, kicks the salt away, turns on all the propane tanks, and then sits down beside Joe. She has just enough time to tell Joe that she'll always love her before Joe dies in her arms and the hellhounds bust through the door. So as much as Joe had wanted her own death to mean something as a sacrifice to save Sam and Dean and help them kill the devil, 
She didn't even make it long enough to push the button, and it's left to Ellen to do. As the hellhounds tear through the place, seeking them out, Sam and Dean escape up a ladder and onto the roof of the next building. Ellen waits until one of the hellhounds is right at her shoulder, and then blows them back to hell. Sam and Dean out on the street see the explosion, and they know. The looks on their faces are total shock, because again, they were not expecting this explosion to be as large as it was, (laughs) and to do as much damage as it did. So there's a mild shock in just how big the boom was. But also for their characters, knowing that Ellen and Joe were dead then. The hellhounds are gone, yes, but so are the people they cared about. But they have to continue on, or their deaths meant nothing. Sam and Dean find the spot in the forest where Lucifer is setting up his ritual, and they also found half the townspeople. All the able-bodied men in town have now been possessed by demons and are standing there, waiting while Lucifer has his little bonfire and is digging something up in the woods. Sam asks Dean if he has any last words, and some thunder rolls in the background, and Dean is just like, I think I'm good. And I've always thought it was wild that Lucifer, the supposed lord of all of these demons, is the one doing the manual labor while all the demons are just kind of standing around watching. (laughs) Like, he really had to do this himself. Like, this is all part of the ritual. Because remember, Lucifer's not just raising death, he's binding death to his will for the purposes of the apocalypse. Because the apocalypse is like one big magical spell, and everything has to happen in the prescribed order, just like freeing Lucifer, all of those seals breaking. There were certain steps that had to be done in the correct order. Like if they'd killed Lilith before they broke the final seal, they wouldn't have been able to free Lucifer that way. And the whole apocalypse prophecy would have collapsed on itself. There's certain steps that just must be accomplished in certain ways. And I've always used that as an explanation for why, like restarting a ritual or performing an act that was part of a previous ritual, like slamming the gates of hell. How come when they've cured demons or attempted to did it not finish that spell? And it's like, well, because all the other parts of it have to be performed at the same time too, like a ritual, or it doesn't work. And honestly, for some of the stuff that happens in Supernatural, that's the only way to explain, well, when they did this before, it did XYZ thing. How come it doesn't now? Well, because it's not part of the ritual. It's not part of the apocalypse ritual. Why when Lucifer and Michael fight later on in canon... Does it not end the world because the apocalypse wasn't just about them fighting? It was about all this stuff that led up to it and all of these prophecies that had to be fulfilled in a specific order. And it wasn't. It's just them fighting. (laughs) So, yeah, that's why the world doesn't end when Michael and Lucifer punch each other in the face or when Dean kills Lucifer many seasons from now. Because that's just not how it works. It's not some failing of the show to fulfill its own prophecies and stuff. It literally was not part of the apocalypse, so it doesn't work that way. It's just a fight. Anyway, so that's how I have to explain a lot of this sort of big picture cosmic stuff and how it is brought about to be or not, as the case may be. All right, moving on. 
That's when Sam throws himself right out into the middle of all these demons as bait. He's got a salt gun, or a shotgun loaded with something. And Lucifer's like, oh, Sam, you don't need that gun here. You know I would never hurt you. Yeah, he wants to use Sam as his best dress suit. But that distraction gave Dean enough time to sneak right up next to Lucifer with the Colt, cock it in his face and say, yeah, well, I'd hurt you, so suck it. And he shoots him right in the face. And Lucifer falls to the ground. And they think they've won for just a second. And unlike previous times when they fired the Colt at a real target that the Colt had the power to kill, the vampire the yellow-eyed demon, when it goes to kill one of the big bads, we cut to a slow motion shot and see every detail of that bullet leaving the gun and time slows down and you get to watch the person it's killing flame out and all of the supernatural energy in them flickers and flashes. And there was none of that. It was really anticlimactic. Dean fired, Lucifer dropped, lying on the ground, And everybody's just kind of standing there looking around. None of the demons even flinched. They're just standing there staring. And Sam and Dean are like, did that even work? What happened? Was it that easy? And it definitely hurt Lucifer to get shot in the head by the cult. But he begins to stir. He's like, ow! Was he dead there for a minute and brought back just because... Or was he faking? Or was he really hurt? What actually happened here? Should Nick even still be inside him at this point? Or should he be gone? Because the angel was dead for a split second. Did God just cram Lucifer back in his vessel because he still needed this show to go on? Questions that I actually don't have answers for, and I'm just posing out of fun because I think about them in circles all the time. None of them are truly consequential to the overall meta or plot of the series. They're just fun little tangents to drive down. Lucifer looks down at the colt in Dean's hand as he stands up, and he's like, where did you get that? And it's like, he didn't even want the answer. He just flings Dean across the clearing and into a tree and knocks him out, leaving Sam standing there, surrounded by Lucifer's minion demons, and garnering Lucifer's full attention now. Lucifer heals the wound on his forehead and tells Sam in a kind of casual, you know, don't blame yourself. There's only five things in all of creation that gun can't kill, and I just happen to be one of them. And I'm wondering if he made that fact up on the spot, or I would have wondered that if they hadn't brought it back as if it was a canonical fact about the cult that was immutable later in canon in season 12. It was a fact that had been apparently part of the gun's lore for years, even though nobody else in canon seemed to know that there were five exceptions to the cult rule until Lucifer just said it just now. Not the angels, not the demons, and if any demon would have known that exception, it would have been Crowley. He would not have put that gun in the Winchester's hands, telling them that it should work because he's not only risking their lives, he's risking his own, making himself hell's most wanted for what he did. He betrayed Lucifer openly. And I honestly do not think Crowley is stupid enough to do that if he thought there was any chance that Lucifer might just be immune to the cult. 
So I don't think that that was actually a factoid in canon. I think this is an early example of Chuck, just like with the angel blades. No angel had an angel blade until the beginning of season five, aside from the very singular one that Uriel had in 416. And then now all of a sudden, all the angels have them with no explanation, and they use them all the time as if they had always done so. I mean, one of the big central mysteries of season four was who's killing the angels? You know, you can't just kill angels. Apparently, nothing did just kill angels. They thought it was big demon magic doing it. And it didn't occur to any of them that it was an angel with an angel blade that they all apparently carry and use all the time. Apparently not, until Chuck decided they should. And I think that that's the rule with the cult here. It was too powerful of a weapon for them to bring out and then just leave on the table in Sam and Dean's hands or even just floating out there in some nebulous place that they have to find it again. And it's like, why make that exception? Why not just have destroyed the cult at that point? But it's been their obsession all season long to find it as their one shot of killing the devil. And now they have no shot at killing the devil, apparently. And apparently angel blades don't work on him since they went through all this trouble. When Cass has an angel blade, you know, didn't think to even use that. So Chuck makes weird rules, doesn't he? About all of his weapons that they get to use. And once again, it will be immaterial after this point for years to come because when Sam and Dean get booped out of this clearing by Cass, they seem to forget that they left the cult behind at all. And they don't even think about it again for a long time to come. And we won't know what's become of it until season 12. That's a long time to just abandon such a powerful weapon even one that has exceptions to the rule. Obviously, just like having a fully powered angel who can just fix all their problems with a snap of his fingers is probably not great plot fodder. (laughs) If they can just magically fix all their problems, they won't have a show. If they have a weapon that can just magically kill anything, it can't be allowed to stay in the narrative. Chuck would have removed it even if our writers hadn't decided to do that, you know? Back to the episode. Lucifer puts Sam on hold. He's got a task to finish. Goes back to digging his whatever he's digging. Sam goes over to check on Dean. Lucifer asks Sam if he wouldn't just say yes right there to save trouble. Sam's like, that's never going to happen. Lucifer casually tosses out again. I think it's going to happen soon. In less than six months. And I think it's going to happen in Detroit. Which is what Dean had already learned in the end verse that Zachariah's horrific future where they failed to kill the devil because Dean couldn't even get a shot off with the cult. The angels all thought the cult would be able to kill the devil. So here he is mentioning Detroit again, which makes me think that it was again part of Chuck's big plan prophecy. This is where this must go down. Sam will say yes in Detroit. And they all just ran with it. Sam angrily tells Lucifer that he's going to kill him himself. Lucifer's like, yeah, you keep nursing along that rage, Sam. I'm going to need it for when I'm possessing you. Sam looks around at all the demon-possessed men standing around. And he's like, what did you do to this town? And Lucifer's like, yeah, one demon for every able-bodied man. And women and children first, they're all inside the mound he's digging. Death is apparently very demanding. 
Lucifer's like, I know what you think of me, Sam, but I have to do this. I have to. You of all people should understand. And just like he tried to sympathize with Cass earlier, saying that they were the same, he's telling Sam the same thing here. And Lucifer takes the exact story that he needs to and applies it to Sam because he knows where the pressure point is. He tells Sam we're both sons. We're both younger brothers. And one day I went to my older brother and I asked him to stand with me. And he didn't. He rejected me. Michael turned on him, called him a freak and a monster. And Sam knows how that feels because that's what Dean said to him or what he thought Dean said to him when he was running off with Ruby, thinking that they were going to kill Lilith and stop the apocalypse, but accidentally released Lucifer. He was manipulated then and Lucifer is manipulating him now. And Michael beat him down because he was different, because Lucifer had a mind of his own. And that's a phrase that Sam has actually said to Dean and was brought back up in last week's episode by our cosplayers, Damien and Barnes, who went through that whole scene and conversation from season one, from Asylum, when Sam was possessed by the rage ghost who called Dean weak and I'm not like you. I have a mind of my own. I can think for myself. That's something that Sam has really grown beyond at this point. And yet it still hits because it's still a wound for him. Lucifer asks if any of that sounds familiar. And yeah, it does. But it sounds familiar in the as above, so below way. Like all of these situations had to be manipulated into this exact right set of parallels for the big narrative. Lucifer then is like, I have a ritual to finish. He has all of the demons repeat after him that they offer up their lives, blood, and souls to complete this tribute. And then all of the demons begin just sparking out one by one and dropping dead on the spot while Sam and Dean watch, horrified. Lucifer senses their judgment. And he's like, what? They're just demons. Proving what Crowley said at the beginning of the episode, Lucifer doesn't give two shits about demons. They're not his beloved children. They're just tools to him. He doesn't care about anything but himself. We then cut back to the basement where Cass is being held, and Meg, she looks delighted. She's convinced that Lucifer is going to win the apocalypse like it was some sort of contest. She's giddy about the prospect of all the demons getting to go to heaven now that Lucifer will be in charge of everything and the angels will all have fallen. Meanwhile, Cass is keeping her talking and distracted because we see a close-up of his hand twisting and then a close-up of the bolt in one of the pipes also twisting. Cass contradicts her and says he heard a different theory from a demon named Crowley. And Meg is appalled at this. She's like, you don't know Crowley. That doesn't phase Cass. He just tells her Crowley's theory that Lucifer is just using demons as a means to an end. And that once he's gotten what he wants, he'll destroy all the demons too. And Cass begins walking towards her as far as he can inside the circle. And Meg starts walking towards him to contradict this. She is still a full believer, though. Your God may be a deadbeat, but mine walks the earth. 
And Honey hasn't heard the whole as above, so below thing, because Chuck's just like Lucifer. But Meg is fully distracted now. She's enjoying tormenting Cass, trapped as he is inside the holy fire. And he's almost done unscrewing all the bolts holding this pipe. When it finally swings free, it knocks right into her back, knocks her across the holy fire and into Cass's arms. He attempts to smite her, and nothing happens. He doesn't have the power, whether it be because he's inside a ring of holy fire or because he's just been cut off from heaven and has depleted his powers to that extent, and she laughs at him. Which makes you wonder what else Cass can no longer do. Is he even more limited than he was at the beginning of the season when he was first cut adrift from heaven? Is he actually slowly falling into humanity like that vision of Zachariah's future? And is this just some big switch they can turn on and off in heaven to cut off specific angels? Because it's not affecting any of the other angels, just Cass. How come it's only affecting Cass? They never give a cosmic order reason for it other than whoever's in charge of heaven can will that switch on and off that prevents Cass from connecting to heaven. Because even when the angels fall in season nine, they still have the power to heal. They don't have the power of teleportation because apparently that requires the wings that they have burnt up in their fall. But they can pretty much do everything else that an angel had ever been able to do. And they don't lose that power as time goes on. So what's going on here with Cass? Why is he following this specifically? Is this just something that Chuck is amusing himself with? watching it happen. And that's my preferred theory. I like to think that Chuck was punishing Cass with this because Chuck's idea of hell is being rendered human and powerless. But he doesn't understand that Cass is not him because that's Cass's entire narrative journey towards humanity. Meg believes that Cass is going to kiss her while he's got her in his arms in this holy fire circle. She's like, what are you going to do now? She accuses him of being impotent meaning his power level, but also double entendre, flirtatiousness. He's like, well, I can do this. And she opens her mouth like he's going to kiss her. And he just flings her down across the holy fire and uses her as a bridge and walks out. But it shows us one thing that Cass does still have the power to do. While Lucifer's got his arms raised and his back turned and summoning up death, the earth begins to shake and it gives Cass the cover to sneak in find Sam and Dean and zap them to safety. Lucifer turns back and notices that Sam and Dean are gone, but he's got bigger things going, looking up at somebody. Well, hello, death. And then it cuts to black and back to Bobby's house, where all the shot glasses are still on the table, overturned, because they're all in mourning. Ellen and Joe are dead. Nobody won today. They failed to kill the devil, And they apparently left the cult behind for Crowley to collect again and don't even mention that they've lost it. Don't even have any drive to go back there and look for it in the daylight when Lucifer's cleared out. It's useless to them. And it's like, why is it useless to you? Why didn't you go back for that gun that can kill anything? Why did you just abandon it and then never speak of it again until season six? It's wild. They've got a weather report on television that's announcing tornadoes and storms and horrific casualties happening in and around Carthage. 
that would be good cover for an entire town's worth of people dying and going missing and everything else that Lucifer did there that day. But also just the fact that death rose, that's going to create some omen level stuff happening. Bobby looks down at the photograph that they'd taken at the beginning of the episode and throws it into the fire, sort of like the hunter's funeral they couldn't have because they had no body to bury Ellen and Joe because they burned up in that explosion. And that's where the episode ends with Dean taking that entire burden of Joe's death onto himself as he watches her photo burn. That was the mid-season finale in season five. Two more months until they found out what happened next, but everything looked pretty darn hopeless at this point, which fits right in with the title of the episode. But still, my biggest questions are Cass and his fall towards humanity. We all can plainly see how different he is from all of the other angels. He cares. He truly does. To all the other angels, it's about fulfilling the prophecy or siding with God in heaven and doing what they believe is their duty. But to Cass, it's about saving what he loves. And already that's become the Winchesters. He won't let Lucifer have Sam Winchester. He doesn't believe that there is a winner to be had in any fighting of the apocalypse. It just results in death and misery and pain. It's the antithesis of everything Cass has ever believed that God wanted for his own creation. And almost as if Cass is being punished by Chuck for feeling that way, by his own fall toward humanity. Like, are you sure this is a good thing to want to save? Are you sure you're taking the right side here? Look what it will do to you. It will render you powerless. And to Chuck, that's a huge fear, as we'll learn much later on, season 15, or even season 11, when he doesn't want to face Amara. He doesn't want to face a challenge to his power. He doesn't want to be depleted or diminished in any way. And he can't imagine that anybody else would be grateful for that. Just to be left alone, to love and live and be happy and content. He has no concept of that. To him, that's so small as to be irrelevant. The grand story of it all is about sacrifice and anguish. And he can't understand why anyone would choose that for themselves. And yet Cass does. And this doesn't deter him from that course of action. And I think it baffles Chuck. I honestly do. That's why in the end of the series, Cass being supposedly restored to heaven and rebuilding heaven. And it's like, that's the punishment that actually would break Cass. And was all along. Every time he's ever been asked to be in charge in heaven, that's the thing he did not want. And yet that's where he gets stuck at the end of the series. It's like Chuck finally figured out what what the best punishment for Cass would be and gave it to him. Figured out what the best punishment was for all of them and just gave it to them in a way they couldn't say no to. And it makes me hate the series finale in every way. So the cult and just gone sometime after the end of season five, Crowley will take it to Ramiel and offer it to him as a personal gift. So Crowley must have been hanging around waiting to see what happened because Sam and Dean will never even say, God, I wish we had the cult. Or why didn't we go back for the cult? It just never becomes relevant again. It's like they've got mind wiped that it even existed, which is annoying. 
Like, fine, if you don't want them to have this weapon or use it, at least make a plausible excuse for it. Like, it's broken. Have Lucifer have taken it. Like, disappear it somehow instead of just having it quietly stop existing off screen. I hate that. (laughs) Sorry, Ben Edlund. That's like one of my things I have that I have an issue with, with your episodes. But anyway. Minor quibble in the grand scheme of things because we know how Chuck is with his weapons, like the equalizer gun in 1420. He just invents it on the spot because plot device and even admits that that's exactly what it is. And it honestly paves over a lot of these weird little plot holes. Anyway, that's a really depressing place to leave off on. And luckily, we only have to wait a week to hear what happens next. Next week, we will be having a little bit more fun again. At least I think it's fun. It's definitely got some dark spots, but there's a lot more character stuff to peel back next week. So probably be a slightly longer episode again. But hooray for having a short one this week, because again, it's all plot stuff and details and a couple little character points. And we bid farewell to Ellen and Joe, but Kripke was burning down the narrative. Chuck was burning down his narrative. At this point, I think Kripke still thought that this was going to be their series finale at the end of season five. I don't know that he was expecting to get renewed again after this. He had already kind of made noises to the effect that season five was it for him. I don't know if they'd come to the point where they were in negotiations for a season six yet. But Kripke intended to finish his story one way or the other and close the whole thing down. Gonna make him go out in a grand fashion and have the most depressing fucking ending ever. Which is what Swan Song would have been if it had been the grand finale. Depressing as fuck. Not as bad as the actual series finale, but on that level of what the fuck did I just watch? I'm not a fan of Swan Song. I know it's everybody's favorite episode, so people say. But uh, I kind of hate it. Anyway, we'll get there in a few months. (laughs) And then everybody will know why I hate it. Plot getting burned down. Characters getting burned down. Everything's getting built up to be knocked over by the end of the season. And next week, the thing that will get knocked over most is Sam and Dean. In Season 5, Episode 11, Sam Interrupted, where we get to meet our very first Wraith and canon. The boys go just a little bit crazy. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr at MittensMorgle or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens, hashtag 4865. Or you can email me at MittensMorgle at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. And yeah, that cult thing really just bugged me. How did they just abandon it and then just go amnesiac over it? They finally figured out, well, if we're going to give them weapons that can kill anything, we're going to have to make them temporary or put other limitations on them because a kill anything gun is too powerful a thing for the plot to survive. You just point the gun and shoot at everything that comes your way. You shoot your way through all your problems and come out the other side and everything's done. (laughs) boring show right no plot no character development they just shoot everything so yeah that couldn't stand unfortunately but the mind wipe over it all just screams of chuck just going i don't want them to have this gun so let's just make it so that it doesn't exist for them anymore snap suddenly nobody can lie anymore you know that level of power over the narrative and honestly that's about the best explanation i have for that because Otherwise, they just sound stupid for not thinking of it again. I hope everyone is having a lovely 2023 so far. 
even though it's only a few days old. Hopefully things will look up from this point of having abandoned all hope. Have a good one, everyone.